my name's Six Foot Stereo, and you are listening to my series of interviews entitled The Current State. This is number three, and I'm very honoured to have one of my favourite musicians, producers, DJs, graphic designers with me today. So without further ado, let me introduce you to Fred Deakin. Hello, my name is Fred Deakin. Uh, in my varied career, I have been a club runner, half of Lemon Jelly, one third of the founders of Airside. Uh, I've made interactive installations, I've put together mix albums, I've DJed a lot, and I'm currently Professor of Digital Arts here at Central St. Martins, actually University of the Arts London. So as always on these interviews, I always start with the question, when did they fall in love with music and the art form? I first fell in love with music when I was about 10 or 11 and I was into pop music and it was something that I was into, I liked it. Uh, but I hadn't really got a passion for it and then I discovered the NME and there was a record shop on our high street uh, and so I, I bought the NME and it was like Greek I had no idea what it was it was a strange document but I was fascinated by it and there was a single of the week it was the Macons and so I went into the shop and I said can I please buy the single of the week Macons by you know I, it was a very very scary moment for me I was 13, probably, something like that. And um, they said, yes, we have a copy. They sold it to me and said, oh, are you going to go and see them next week? And I, my mind just went, you, you know, I can buy this thing from you and I could even go and see this band. Um, and the record shop was Honky Tonk Records on Kentstown Road. And um, I write about it in the triptych. Uh, but that was definitely the point where I completely fell in love with popular music because I could see there was this culture and this depth to it. And it wasn't, I mean, I, even, even a nine-year-old watching Top of the Pops knew that that wasn't the real McCoy. And this is the 70s, so, you know, it really wasn't the real McCoy. Um, so yeah, I think Honky Tonk and buying vinyl and going to gigs as a teenager, that was the kind of the turning point for me. So I was interested in finding out when a love of music becomes something, something more, maybe a career, certainly more than a casual hobby. So I bought a lot of records uh, and there was definitely a moment when dance culture started up. Uh, it was kind of the birth of hip hop in the early 80s, late 70s. And 
Up to that point, it had been very clear, post-punk was kind of like a very anti-disco and very anti-dance, as was all popular music back then, insanely. But then hip-hop came along and it kind of changed that, and this whole DJ thing started, and everyone was into funk, suddenly. Uh, and I suddenly realised that I wanted to be a DJ. I'd been in a few bands and it didn't, hadn't really worked out. Uh, but I was buying so much record, so many records, so much, so much vinyl, and I kind of realised it had to pay for itself a bit. So I suddenly realised I wanted to be a DJ. So I tried DJing, and again, that was a total disaster. But I got somewhere, I was starting to get there, uh, and I got a few gigs, and then I moved to Scotland. I went to Edinburgh University. And when I went up there, I started uh, putting on nightclubs, putting on nights up there, because there was nothing. I mean, that's not quite true, there were a couple of nights. but. And this is pre-rave, this is like 80s, mid-80s. So clubs were still relatively unusual phenomena. Uh, and yeah, that again was a major kind of transformational experience. I was running my first club night with my mate Simon. And our mates came and they had a great time and they went, when's the next one? And we went, oh my God, this works, you know? And playing, I was, I was a DJ all night and that was, that was a dream. It's fantastic, it's playing records people danced to. Like a lot of people, putting your own nights on affords you the opportunity to play what you want. So I wondered if that was the case for him too. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and also to have a, a space. I mean, in London, when I was DJing as a teenager, I had a couple of experiences where that kind of butting with other, up with other DJs and kind of jostling for position behind the decks. And you, it were just some dicks, you know. I mean, we were all young, it's fair enough. You're allowed to do that sort of stuff. But there were some really stupid things went on. Um, and I just thought, I can't, I'm nervous enough about DJing. If I've got someone trying to put me off or steal my slot, this doesn't work for me. Fuck that shit. You know, I'm not having that. So I thought to myself, I'll start my own nights. And also, also I found if you're DJing kind of randomly, it's quite hard to get the audience you want you end up having to play music that you might not want to play or not have the music they want to hear. Whereas if you put your own night on, you can kind of be really clear about it. Well, this is my night. I'm going to play this. If you like it, come. If you don't like it, don't come. So you're in a much more secure position, I think. And that's what got me into graphic design and got me into kind of designing experiences because I wanted my club to be the best club in the whole world, you know, obviously, and the most unusual and crazy and fun-packed night you could ever possibly have. So we really pushed the envelope. I carried on running clubs in Edinburgh because it was this thing that I loved. And I, uh, one of the nice things about, about a city like Edinburgh, as opposed to London, is that there's a real community. I suspect the same is true of, of Brighton or Bristol or, or York or whatever, or Leeds. Um, Londoners are spoiled, rotten, and as a result, they don't make any effort at all. They expect to be fed uh, on, on a plate the delights that, that other people are much more um, thankful for. And having a community in Edinburgh meant I was DJing on a regular basis to a bunch of people that I knew and loved. And that was a very unique experience that I was very grateful for because you got that feedback. People came up and told you. If they didn't like what you were doing, they would tell you. But also if they did like what you were doing, they would be, they would be very clear about it and express it. So that was great. Um, so I carried on running clubs for a while and the design, I got more and more ambitious about the graphic design and I started doing screen prints for posters 
for some of the clubs. And I kind of realized that the design side of things was something that I really wanted to get into more. Me and my sister Camilla did an acid house fanzine in the late 80s called Gear. And that was really interesting too. And I kind of thought, oh, hang on a second. I'm making these posters and flyers and fanzines and there's something else going on here. I, I, I might have some aptitude in this area and that could be a proper job uh, because I kind of realized by that point that I didn't want to run clubs as a career. Part of my brain went, yes, this is the thing you're good at. You know, get yourself a venue, start up a whole kind of business around this. And then I thought the last thing I want to do is be, be kind of trying to find people to come to my venue my nights, four nights a week. I was doing like monthly nights and kind of maybe fortnightly, but and we did some weekly clubs as well, but they were special. They were special occasions. It was Christmas. And um, the thought of trying to fill out a Tuesday every week uh, to pay the, the mortgage or the, the overheads was just, uh, I, I fortunately realized that, that wasn't the route I wanted to go down. I think what I realized was that you can do what you love and be creative and that that is magical and also very hard to live with that once you've had it. Um, for me anyway, I'm not saying this is true of everybody, but it kind of spoiled me because I, I just didn't want to go and get a proper job after that. And I'm saying a proper job in that I didn't want to work for anybody else doing something I didn't care about. So I think this job here at, at St Martin's is the first job I've ever had really since, since I was, you know, in my early 20s. And I've got a lot of freedom here and I care about what I'm doing and it's great, you know, but there aren't that many jobs like that around. And certainly back then, you know, I'd been, I'd been a freelance junior designer. I worked with a guy called Ian Swift who did all the Talking Loud uh, and the early Mo Wax graphics and he designed Straightener Chaser. And that was about as good a job as you could get. You know, I was working in the music industry, designing album sleeves, and it was still, you know, I had a good time and I learned a lot, but it wasn't, wasn't doing it for me. It didn't quite make me feel like I was doing what I was meant to be doing while I was on this planet. Whereas when I was running the clubs, or doing the fanzines, or creating stuff, I, saw, I, I kind of thought, yes, I am fulfilling my, my higher purpose or whatever. You know, this is what I'm meant to be doing. Is it giving these people a good time? Or making this, this visual art go out in the world and make the world a, a more beautiful place or whatever it was. So like a lot of DJs making the transition from playing other people's music to making your own, I wonder when that happened for him. Well, um, so I moved back to London to do another degree uh, here at St Martin's and kind of solidify my graphic design career and of course I came down and, and started running clubs down here as well. And then I saw a lot of my peers making music and making that transition 
like James Lavelle, for example. Uh, and I thought, I can do that. You know, they're, just, they're, just, they're, they're DJs first and foremost, and they've got those ears, and they've got that creativity, but it's not like when I was trying to be in a band and, and when I was a teenager, where you've got to you know, actually come up with some songs and, and, or sing or something, you know, or whatever. I mean, I, th I think probably if I'd applied myself more, I might have been able to do it, but for some reason it wasn't calling me then. So, but then the whole kind of, yeah, dance music was much more established at that point. Uh, and yeah, I started thinking, well, I can make these records that I'm playing. I, I could do that. So I had a go and I found out it was slightly harder than it looked, but luckily I, I ran into Nick uh, and Nick ran into me. And um, yeah, we started mucking around in the studio and, and it, it, the, the spark flew, you know. But initially the instinct was almost to further my DJ career to make the records. I guess it was a love of dance music. It was, it was it was feeling like I knew, because as a DJ, you kind of see music coming. And I've been very early, I'm sure you've had a similar experience, you see, you go, all oh, right, that thing over there, that's the interesting thing out of all this stuff. And I bet in a year's time, that's gonna be massive. And then you see it get massive and you kind of go, well, you know, I kind of wish I'd done something about that because that was, that was an opportunity. Um, but more than that, I think it's something about discovering that you can make music that you love and you're proud of is, is another creative another creative act. It's like creating a club night or creating a post or creating a flyer. Creating a track is, first first track I ever did, I blew my mind. I went, oh my God, we made a great track. This is amazing. You know? curious to find out if those early moments had a special feeling about them whether when they sat there they thought that they'd just produce something that might go on to sell thousands of albums or be nominated for a Mercury Music Prize to be honest I think I was slightly more optimistic about it than Nick was partly because Nick's worked in the music industry all his life and he he, he knows he, for him it was much more of an, uh, of, a, of an ordinary day to make a track with me it wasn't as much of a big deal because he worked with Primal Scream and Blur and people like that you know it was like he's seen that act happen and um, his producer career, career was was you know going really well so obviously I had a design career and a club running career but I think for Nick it wasn't as much of a revelation as it was for me and I kind of I smelt something going on there and I ran around all my content and um, flagged us some good PR and got us in straight, straight in a chaser and things like that. But I don't think either of us ever thought that we'd end up doing what we did in any way, shape or form. It was just a good laugh. We were having fun and you know, making music and yeah, let's put out a little EP and see what happens. Yeah, why not? But but turning that into a, you know, a record contract and, and, and gold albums and touring and stuff, that was never, never on the table really. We were lucky that it happened to us fairly late on in life. We were both in our 30s. 
And I actually think if it happened to me in my 20s, it would have really messed me up, actually. And I think you can see people who have been messed up by that because it's a strange thing and you have to be graceful with it. You can't force it. And, um, you know, some people get one track, some people get one album, some people get three albums, as we did. Some people get a career the rest of their lives. And there's no real, you think when you go into it, you think you can control it, you can't control it. It's totally out of your hands how you, that part of your career goes. You can maximize it, you know, you can, you, can, you can play the odds a little bit here and there, and you can certainly screw it up. Uh, but ultimately, you really just gotta allow it to flow where it wants to flow. There was one point, I remember me and Nick at a festival, it was quite early on, looking up at Coldplay and they were just on stage. We were in the little VIP bit at the front where the, photo, where the photographers go. We're watching Coldplay and looking at each other and you're going, that could be us? Nah, I don't think so. <laughs> So I know there's a lot of people keen to know whether Lemon Jelly have got any plans to put out any new music. So I had to ask the question. Well, it's a funny one that, um, I mean, it's, yeah, I have to be a little bit respectful of, 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 of Nick in this conversation and, and kind of make sure that I don't sort of say anything that would be um, disrespectful because yeah, I mean, there, there are various reasons why we haven't made any more records. I personally think we probably won't ever make another record again now, but I haven't ruled it out. Um, I think, and I, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but I suspect I'm not. Um, I think that it could have gone on further, but I think in a way, it's probably quite a, the right moment to, to have ended because you know we'd, we'd gone over the hill a little bit like the first two albums were gold and lost horizons and and, and got ky but the 64 to 95 i think was only silver and there was a massive change in music around then the whole kind of post-punk revival which shows no sign of, of slowing down suddenly came out of nowhere i remember when franz ferdinand won the mercury it was the year after we got nominated and people were running around going, oh my God, how could this possibly be? This is such an extreme record. Now Franz Ferdinand sounds incredibly normal now. Uh, you know, and it's only, you know, it, it, is, it is admittedly about 12, 13 years ago. Um, but yeah, that was a major sea change. Uh, and there hadn't been a big sea change since 88 before that, really, the Acid House thing, which, which was, again, an enormous sea change and a fantastic sea change, but it had run its course, in my opinion. It was right and proper that music should shift. And we were on the other side of the wall without a shadow of a doubt. So you don't have control of that stuff. The famous story about Rick Wakeman uh, saying when punk happened. In the space of six months, we went from being, yes, went from being the coolest band in the world to the naffest, most hated band in the world. Now, I'm not suggesting that happened to us in any way, shape or form, but there was definitely a shift. And I think that at that point, unless we'd done something really radical, which neither of us kind of felt like it would be appropriate to do, We'd end up repeating ourselves a bit, and you know, there's, there's. I look at other people's careers, and I'm certainly not going to mention any names, but I can see, you can see it was kind of slow dribble out, and we just went. So I'm quite pleased about that. 
also then what happened after Lemon Jelly? Well, I did an album called Flashman with Robin Jones from the Beat the Band, and that was great. But it, it was, it, I think it confused some people because it was basically a jazz album, bizarrely. Uh, we were working with a lot of jazz musicians in Scotland. Um, and I'm really fond of that album, I think it's a great album. Uh, and um, yeah, it's not Lemon Jelly. Nothing, nothing that I've done is that Lemon jelly to be honest with you, since then. And again, I'm quite pleased about that because I think it's important not just to try and be a pet imitation of your former self. Because the jelly is me and Nick, and it always will be. And so there's no point trying to, trying to recreate that. Uh, and then I did an album called Frank Eddie, which was more of a kind of bootleggy chop-up album with a lot of acapellas on it. So it's more of a kind of clubby album. And that was really good fun as well. I really enjoyed that. Um, so I was wondering, is he still making music? Yeah, I, I, I can't really stop because I started a process with Lemon Jelly of finding pieces, jigsaw pieces of sonic scraps, kind of land, music, music soundscapes and stuff, and put them together. And I can't stop doing it, really. I just kind of do it for fun. I, mean, I buy a lot of records, and I comb through them for samples and inspiration. And then I have a little home studio, and I dick about there. And yeah, it's just, yeah, I think I'll be making, making music now till I die. And I have to thank for that, because I didn't really, until I'd seen the process from the inside, I didn't have the confidence to do it on my own, to be honest with you, but, but yeah. So, um, yeah, Frank Eddie was more clubby, certainly. And um, yeah, we got a lot of playing sex music, that was nice. And um, some nice videos, were, uh, we, we got some nice videos for that as well, it was good. One of the things that I was always doing as a club runner and as a DJ was I, I, I can't really deal with too cool for school. If things start getting too serious, I just, there's something in me just has to put on something stupid and just, just screw it up a little bit. And that kind of comes from being a teenager and getting turned away from London clubs because I wasn't dressed up for the nines. Uh, and thinking afterwards, if ever I get into the position of that, I'm never going to do that to other people. So I, I don't like it. I, 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 if I see people being too cool and you know, kind of like uh, fascistic about it, and like, this isn't, oh, we're not playing that, we don't like that. Well, then they're going to get it. Sorry. <laughs> Earlier on in the interview, he had alluded to having some tracks finished and ready to go. So obviously, uh, I needed to know more. I am slightly obsessed with the notion of, of, the, of the concept album. Uh, specifically, a, con a proper concept album that tells a story. So I just decided, because one of the reasons why I did the Frank Eddie album the way I did it was because I made all these tracks and then I didn't have any ideas for vocals and I didn't want to do the jelly and get some speech samples, which is our solution to that problem. Nor did I want to work with an with attractive younger female vocalist, which would be, I think, also a fairly standard route out of that particular uh, issue. Uh, I'm sure my record company would be very happy to take that project, but it wasn't really something I wanted to do. I'm not ruling it out, you never know. But, um, so, the Frank Eddie album was all a cappellas and kind of found, found uh, vocals. So I didn't want to do that again. And then I started getting obsessed with the notion of telling a proper story over the course of an album and actually making something like War of the World uh, or The Point by Nielsen is another example. There's not very many examples. Tommy, I think, 
Most so-called concept albums are just really a loose set of tracks that have been put together uh, with a theme or something, but they don't really tell the story, most of them. But people talk about Dark Side of the Moon being a concept album. People talk about Lost Horizons being a concept album. And, and neither of them particularly, you know, they're just about, maybe. Um, so I then decided, okay, well, how hard can it be? <laughs> so I've been, I've got about 20 fantastic tracks and I've been trying to slot them into, into order with lyrics and vocals and a cast of singers to make a concept album that has a story, a proper story running through the whole thing. And it is a real head scratcher, but we're getting there now. I think I've just about nailed the story pretty much this morning. Uh, and I've just about found my vocalist pretty much yesterday. So um, yeah, fingers crossed it'll be out later this year. So getting to the subject of the interview and having embraced digital technology so much in all the varied uh, aspects of his career, I was keen to know what the biggest changes he's seen so far. Well, it's changed in two ways. I think it's changed uh, completely. Uh, and the first way is production and the second way is distribution. Uh, and production... The changes in production mean that you can do anything, but so can everybody else. And I think that there's no right or wrong, but there's no two ways about it. The music of my youth, there was a there was a kind of barrier to entry, which was can you actually get the instruments together and get a recording studio together and get the money to put it out on vinyl. And if you can muster the enthusiasm and the resources to do that if you can be inspired by your piece of music that you've made enough to go through all of those hurdles then your music gets out into the world and that's the reward and so if you're not totally into your music then you don't you don't do that you maybe play the guitar for fun but you don't put it out in the world not so now it all goes goes out there so the the volume is huge you know music his colleague has said at the birth of digital he was saying the mantra in the industry was it's never been easier to play it's never been harder to win so I think it's, it, it, for a, from a production point of view you really got to have a point of difference you've got to know what you're doing and you've got to find it, it, point of difference is always the main thing how can you stand out from everybody else Um, and then distribution, people don't discover music. No one knows quite how people discover music these days, I don't think. I don't think anyone's really got it tied down. I mean, I, you know, I had a meeting with, with someone at Excel a few weeks ago, and they were saying, we had this album. This guy said, let me put it out. I'll, I'll, you know, don't do anything, just, just let me put it out, but, but you know, be ready for what happens, then we'll follow on from it. And he put it out on his own, went to number four. Now, they don't know how he did that. He doesn't quite know how he did that. It just happened organically because he was in the right place with a really good fan base and the, and the product caught fire. But again, the gateway has been blown wide open and the record companies are there to 
kind of find people that have got that far. I mean, Excel signed us because we put out three EPs ourselves. They didn't come and find us and say, hey, you guys sound good. We think you could sell records. They saw that we were selling records and then jumped in at that point. Now, they've always operated differently Excel, but most record companies' jobs in the past was to go and find the raw talent and then take them all the way. That's not the case anymore. They're watching and it's completely self-reliant now and nobody knows what the, what, what the solution is. You can, do, you can do everything right and you won't have a hit. When we came out, I remember thinking, if we make a really good record with a really nice sleeve, we will, people will find us. But I don't think that's true anymore. And most of the artists and the bands that I like, and I buy a lot of new vinyl, and I listen to a lot of new music, and the bands that I love coming out at the moment, a lot of them don't sell any records. They sell nothing. You know? Which, and that wouldn't have been the case back in the day. My tastes, my ears are usually, have always been pretty well aligned to what is successful. So I would spot this band and then a year later everyone would be into them. Not so anymore, it's really interesting. So many changes. So coming to the title of the interview, I was keen to know what he sees as the current state of music. I think it's in a very rude health indeed, especially for young people. I think that the access they've got to music, uh, and I've got some couple of nephews who are just really discovering music now at the moment and really getting into it, and they're, they're immersing themselves in everything, which I think is brilliant, and, and that has its pluses and minuses, but there's no two ways about it. In terms of, you know, the, the, the smorgasbord of music for a consumer at the moment is actually incredible. I think we are seeing the rebirth of the underground, though, at last, thanks to the sweet Lord. There, no, for a long time there was a consensus that we, that we all like the same music. It kind of coincided with the last Labour government, actually. Uh, and then suddenly, I think... There's a lot of bad music out that's selling a lot of records at the moment. And that wasn't the case necessarily 15 years ago. There was a lot of really good stuff was selling in large quantities. But nowadays, I think that most bands selling a lot of records are rubbish. And that was true in the 70s and the 80s and a lot of the 90s. And then there was a kind of period where that wasn't necessarily the case, I think, where everyone suddenly got good taste for whatever reason, I don't know why. That's not the case anymore, I would argue. You know, most most bands on top of the pops were awful. And we have these rose tinted glasses and we remember what's on top of the pops. You would wait for the one good band. Everything else would be save all your pieces from I think that the digital sphere over the last five to ten years, really very much in the last five years, has suddenly become much more corporate. And big global corporates, the GAFA, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, the GAFA crew, have 
have managed to lock down monetizing the internet. And uh, 10 years ago, that was not the case. Absolutely not the case. The internet was vibrant and exciting, and you go there for, for experimentation and innovation. But in the last five, 10 years, smartphones and tablets have really been the Trojan horse, I think, for, for Gaffer to, to rinse, especially young people, completely rinse them and bang up those mobile phone contracts and extract every penny they can out of them. It's an incredibly powerful device. And that's not, I'm not a lover, don't get me wrong. I think there's a huge number of buses about, about um, devices, smart devices, or whatever you want to call them. Um, but I think that is echoed in the state of music. Uh, and when you've got, you know, Rihanna on the front of the relaunched NME, like, that would not have happened in a million years at the end of last century. As a result of that, I do see an underground emerging. The, 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 the exponential growth of grime in recent years is, is, a, is a case in point. But I also, I think there's a lot of little scenes emerging and I try and keep tabs on some of them, not all of them. It's not my world anymore. But um, yeah, I think there is a more healthy underground mentality, a kind of young people who suddenly are going, well obviously I don't listen to that because it's rubbish and all that music is rubbish that sounds like that. And again, I can really relate to that experience because when 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 you know when punk or post-punk came along, it was like everyone else was going, what is that? No, I don't want anything to do with that. You know? so, and I guess the big difference is that punk and post-punk, there was, there was no way for them to stay underground. They had to go through the, the industry growth cycle. But now it is arguable that the underground can remain underground. It doesn't need to find the mainstream because, you know, it, it can sell enough and, and, and find out. I mean, grime is not is not taken over the charts yet, and yet clearly people are making good livings out of it as well. So, so yeah, really interesting times, I think. I think that there's a very healthy scene. I think it needs more young bands need more money. I would say. I think that that. There's no, there's no support for the middle ground in the way they used to be, and that makes me sad. And that's mainly because of the new digital model where you are kind of being pushed towards selling a lot of records if you want to actually make a living in the, in the industry. Um, although there are exceptions to that rule. But it, the, the, the clear path seems to be chase the mainstream down with a vengeance and pretend it's not the mainstream, pretend it's in the pool, and everyone will be okay with it. Um, so, I work with various people uh, who are also also have their own bands and they're kind of starting up. And I see how hard they have to work to make any kind of living. It's pretty rough. So I'd like to see more support for young for young music for youth, for, for young people making music and bands that are coming up. I don't know how they're going to get it. To be honest with you. Um, because it just seems so hard if you if you're if you're if you're a bunch of kids and you want to make a record and you know you want to make get your band going, you kind of have to sell it to the man. Really, I don't know how how you make a living. I mean, people are DJing to make enough money to pay for their band and pay for their record to come out. And it's like it's insane. I'd like to see something more interesting being done with the world of digital music because I don't really think we have found the true expression of the internet musically. It seems to me that it's still a bunch of crappy MP3s and YouTube links. And 
The album is a beautiful thing. Don't get me started on the CD. But the album is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And you know, if every medium has its native format, then watch the internet. What's music on the internet's proper format? Please tell me it's not a YouTube video. I think the resurgence of vinyl is definitely a reaction to the fairly shallow experience that is, is music on the internet at the moment. I'm taking this opportunity to discuss and you every so often someone has a go at it. Bjork was the most the recent one with our, our app album. Uh, and the XX things as well. But making use of our people want that depth. They do want that depth. They also want to stream on their phones and play anything they want whenever they want. And, but Spotify is not a rich experience. It's just not. It's a very convenient experience. It's a very quick experience. And there's, you know, it has its place in the pantheon of musical experiences. But as far as a kind of artistically nuanced interactive experience, and these devices are supposed to be so powerful and innovative and, and such game changers. And it's like it's a little juke. Box, a very bad jukebox where you press the button and you get this tiny little square and that's your only communication with the music. There must be something better we can do than that. And if I knew what it was, I'd be a very rich man. But I have to, uh, I, I intend to explore it whenever I can. Uh, I have done in, in a lot of the interactive work that I've done. Uh, and I'm going to continue to do that because I really think there are some really missed opportunities at the moment in the way that music can be part of our digital lives. I think there's much more exciting things to, to come. So I was interested in his thoughts about coming to release some new music, whether he still feels he has a place in the place he once occupied, whether that's still there for him. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I have a place in it, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm releasing music because I kind of have to. And the fact that it's moved on from Lemon Jelly means that a lot of people who like Lemon Jelly might not like this, and I have to deal with that. Um, I kind of have to wait and see a little bit. I mean, this concept album idea might be just what people want, or it might not be. In the same way that Lemon Jelly, we had no bloody idea people wanted to listen to that, that stuff. And when it first came out, most people went, oh my God, what is that? I, I can't listen to that, it's insane, you know. And that all sounds much more, much more familiar, but. Our public image doesn't. Yeah, I'm keen to engage with it. I'm keen to engage with music from a 21st century point of view, from a kind of 2017 point of view. And I think that means I'm looking for new ways to, to put my music out there because I knew exactly what to do with that first EP because I bought so many records in my life. I was like, okay, this is what the sleeve should look like. It should sit on the wall in rough trade. Just there, if it does, I know those DJs will go, what is that record? I need to hear it. And it has to sound like this for them to then take it home and play it. I've got no idea how to reach the people I want to reach now um, because it's not the world that I grew up in. So you've got to experiment, you've got to take some risks. So yeah, watch this space. Ask me again in a year. Hopefully I'll have some answers. And discourage their employees. I'd like to feel that each of us sees our job as a satisfying challenge rather than a chore or a
respected. So if you've never heard one of Fred's legendary mix albums, I strongly urge you to do so. I believe that but thinking about that led me to find out whether he's still DJing, whether he is still gigging. I DJed for Leo, the guy who signed us to XL uh, the other day for his birthday party. That was a lot of fun. Um, I can't do five in the morning anymore on a regular basis, once in a while maybe. Um, I like the club experience. I like making experiences. I like the gig experience as well. Um, I certainly wouldn't rule out DJing. I'm always always uh, up for the right sort of set. Um, but it's trying to find a way to, again, to do something interesting. What I'm doing at the moment, which is really good fun, is, is soundtracking uh, improvisational theatre shows, which is a lot of fun. There's these guys called Project Two who do these science fiction shows where they improvise science fiction movie narratives. And of course, you know, John Carpenter and you know, Arrival and Stranger Things and all that. There's a rich heritage. Uh, so I'm kind of, it's very like DJing. I'm kind of, I get a bunch of, of sound files and a bunch of filter boxes and I, and I sit there and there's a guitarist called Tom, who's great as well. And we make these science fiction soundtracks up on the fly and they make up a movie on the stage and, and the whole thing is a, is, a, is a beautiful, beautiful mess. So again, I think that's a really good example of, of you know, I, I, I DJed four nights a week almost every, every year of my 20s and I have done it. And I did it damn well, thank you very much. And now I'm looking for something that takes those skills and that, that kind of aptitude but is 2017. And you know, and I'll take out a box of records once in a while and, and give them a spin, why not? Um, we just did five nights at the vaults in, in Waterloo, which was fun. Um, I'm sure there will be. They do a monthly night called Geek Easy at the Miller um, in London, near London Bridge. But yeah, we should get on tour really. We should, we should certainly come to Brighton. I think there's a, there's a Brighton Improv Festival, I think. Maybe we'll come to Brighton Comedy Festival. But I did it, I, the first time I ever did it for them, I did it in Brighton. Uh, so yeah, we'll have to go out together. Maybe we could find a way to make it a kind of clubby thing as well. I don't know. Ah, my brain started flashing now. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll be on tour at some point soon. So yeah, we'll get out together. Anyone's interested in booking us, give us a shout. And with that, we were done. I'd run out of questions and I think Fred had talked for about 50 minutes non-stop so all that was left to do was say a big thank you to Fred Deakin for affording me his time and being a very generous host so thank you Fred very very much a great pleasure thank you
شد